Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And it is my privilege to be able to welcome all of you this morning for worship, whether you are with us in person or via the live stream on Facebook or YouTube. We are thrilled you have chosen to worship with us, and we want to offer just a warm, warm welcome to you. If you are visiting with us this morning, uh, we are glad that you are here with us. We hope you got the goodie bag filled with the wonderful stuff out there and take that home and enjoy that. It allows you to learn a little bit uh, about us and part of our vision of loving God, loving one another, and loving our community is we want to get to know each other. We want to build friendships and relationships with each other. And so we encourage you, if you are on the outside, I guess, of one of the rows, start the friendship pad, sign it, let us know, and this is for everybody, this is for regular attenders, members, and visitors alike. Sign the pad, pass it down to your friend, and then we'll be able to get them and see who's here and develop that friendship with you. Also, we have thousands of these little guys left, so we're still doing this for communion, so we hope you picked up one. If you need one still, raise your hand. One of the deacons and ushers can get one to you. This is uh, the elements for communion this morning. We are coming to the Lord's Supper, Jesus inviting us to his meal, welcoming us by grace this morning, and so we hope and pray that that will be a rich part of our worship service. A couple of uh, just brief announcements. We have an inquirer's class coming up in November. The dates will be Friday evening, November 12th from 6 to 9, and then again at 9 a.m. Uh, Saturday, November 13th. If you are interested, you could either sign up on the display table. There are sign-up sheets out in the narthex, or go to our website, and you can find a registration form there and do that. The Bookbinders group meets this coming Friday from 10 to 11 a.m. at the church. And so, ladies, if you want to be a part of that book club, see Marianne Johnson with any questions regarding that. And, of course, you have for prayer. Uh, this week is the Sheds of Hope Youth Build. See Dick Forrester if you have any questions regarding that, and you have the dates of that. And so those are various things. I'm not going to be comprehensive. You have your announcements that you can bring home with you. I hope and pray read them after the service, not during. How's that for wishful thinking for your pastor uh, in terms of things? And so now as we prepare our hearts for worship, let's recognize we are entering into the very presence of the Lord. And so with both joy and reverence, let's come before the Lord.
the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann in his Theology of the Old Testament writes that worship both models and enacts an alternative world of sanity that prevents Israel, who is the Old Testament people of God, from succumbing to the seductive insanities of a world raging against the holiness of Yahweh. There is no more sane place to be than in the presence of God, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Isaiah chapter 55 gives us this invitation to worship. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, think about that, we have no resources whatsoever, and yet God is inviting us to come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You expect absolutely nothing from us, Father, and all we have as we enter your presence is our need. We are desperate for you, and you feed us with yourself. Thank you for your grace. May we respond with gratitude and humility and glorifying your holy name. Join with us, we invoke your name to be with us, that we would sing your praises and celebrate your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together. Be thou my vision.
may be seated. Our confession of faith this morning comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, questions one and two. We will acknowledge our faith, recite these responsively, but I want you to think about this in terms of our hope in Christ. We come to worship each and every Lord's Day. My prayer is to have our hope in Christ, the only security we have in this world, to have it strengthened. And so, my friends, what is your only comfort in life and death? But we long, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on. And what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such let us stand and sing together.
seated. Sometimes I'm just struck by the fact that this God, that nothing can compare with, with the one who is unsearchable and inscrutable, that we have nothing we can give to him, and yet, out of sheer love, he invites us to commune with him, that he actually desires us. To me, that just blows me away, and it makes prayer so rich and so intimate. Let's pray together the prayer our Savior taught us to pray and lift up our hearts to the Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Words can't express can't give you what you deserve. Father, thank you for who you are. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Nothing can compare with you. Our only proper response is simply to surrender and to adore you. Lord, we hallow your name and pray that you will be set apart not only in this hour where we are more formally gathered as your people, called out of the world, assembled together to worship you, but even as we're scattered back into the world, that we would hallow your name in our actions, in our deeds, in our relationships, in our service, in all that we do. That we would represent your kingdom. That we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And we pray for the consummation and the completion of your kingdom. We hasten and long for the return of Jesus when the world will be put to rights, when everything sad will become untrue, where there'll be no more mourning or death or crying or pain. We long for that day. And we pray that we would be a people committed to seeing your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we depend upon you for all things. So we pray to you for our daily bread, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, in every area. And we pray for those in our midst who are hurting, who are suffering. Whether it be a physical illness, whether it be a long-time battle with affliction or trial in some way. We pray for caregivers and their struggles. We pray for their loneliness. We pray, Father, for friendships. We ask for our daily bread in every area. And we pray for our holiness of life. We take holiness seriously. We are set apart. As we confessed early, our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own. And that's not just a comfort. It is also kind of an exhortation and a challenge. We do not belong to ourselves. We don't have the right to choose to do whatever we want. We belong to you. We receive every liberty and every gift you've given to us, but we are not our own. Every breath we have comes from you. 
And so, Lord, may we be led not into temptation, but we, may we be delivered from evil, the evil of our flesh, the evil from the evil one, the evil from the world around us. And we do confess that yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And so, Lord, we pray that you answer these prayers for your glory and your namesake through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
be seated. Let's pray together. Your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces between bone and marrow joints. It exposes the intentions, the motives, the direction of our heart. Lord, I pray for your word to do its work this morning. I pray for your will to be done. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We are in chapter 4, and this morning we are looking at four brief verses, verses 9 through 12. So if you have Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to our reading of the text this morning, which is Romans chapter 4. Verses 9 through 12, friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. All right, back around, I want to say it was March or something like that. You know, there's that NCAA tournament, what do they call it, March Madness, something like that, college basketball. There was a new commercial, or at least it was new to me, put out by Capital One. So, and I'm not encouraging, go get the credit card, I'm not doing a commercial for them, but... In this particular commercial, there were kids that were lining up on either side, picking players for their respective teams to play a game of pickup basketball. Makes sense if it's March Madness, right? They're playing pickup basketball. And this little girl goes and she picks Charles Barkley. Now, if you don't know who Charles Barkley is, he's a big six foot four play, Hall of Famer played for the Philadelphia 76ers. That was, I know he was traded and went to different teams, but he was a Philadelphia 76ers at heart. And so this little girl picks Barkley first. And Char Charles Barkley goes, yes, I've still got it. And he turns around to one of the little boys, and of course, these are all little boys, and he's six foot four, and he says, I told you I'd be picked first. Now, I'm glad you all are laughing at that and stuff like that. Funny commercial. I still laugh at it when I see it. And, of course, I love Charles Barkley. But it reveals something of the human heart. What it reveals is that we all want to be in. We all want to be in the inner circle, in the club, 
We all want to belong. We want to be in. It reminds me of one of C.S. Lewis's best essays called The Inner Ring. He writes, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. As long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You are trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider, you will remain. We all want to be in that inner circle. We all want to be with the cool kids at the table. Why do you think we struggled so much with junior high and high school? We all wanted to be in the inner ring. Now, we need to remember about the book of Romans that Paul is a missionary at heart. We like to think of Paul as a systematic theologian, and we like to think of Romans as a letter that expounds his systematic theology. And of course, as I have said before, is there a lot of deep theology in Romans? Of course. But it serves his greatest, greater end is that he is a missionary to the Gentiles. His heart, his passion was to want to see the Lord raise up and establish churches, especially among the Gentiles throughout the Mediterranean world. He had a vision for the church. In his mind, the church was that beautiful community made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers, diverse and yet one. And he had made his base of operations up until this time, the church at Antioch, and later in the book of Romans, he states his goal is to go to the ends of the earth as far as Spain. And as such, he's interested in both raising support for and basing his mission out of the church at Rome. And so what is he doing here? He is sending a missionary letter. He is writing a missionary letter to the church at Rome, introducing himself to this church that he has not yet been able to physically visit. And he's wanting to expound what he's been set apart for, the gospel of God, and introduce himself to them. And basically, in the words of one commentator, he is giving them a word of exhortation, a masterpiece of missional theology, culturally savvy apologetics, Christological exegesis, pastoral care, theological exposition, and artful rhetoric, all designed to win over the audience to Paul's gospel, to support his mission in Spain, to draw, listen to this, to draw Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome together, to strengthen them in the faith despite the perils of Roman culture, despite the insanities of a world, as Dr. Brueggemann said, raging against the holiness of Almighty God. This commentator goes on to say then that the purpose of Romans is to explore how the gospel creates a community of worshipers from Jews and Gentiles who are united in the Messiah. Paul cannot be with the Roman Christians for the moment, so in the interim, and I love this phrase that the writer's name is Michael Bird that he puts it, he says, so in the interim, he gospelizes them. 
See, I love that. By the way, I'm going to use that. I want to gospelize you. He gospelizes them. That is to say he endeavors to cultivate a gospel-soaked faith, spirituality, unity, and mission in the Roman house churches. What do you think? I think these are worthy aims. I think this is a worthy ambition to be gospelized, to cultivate a gospel-soaked faith, spirituality, unity, and mission. And so what does, how in chapter 4, in Romans chapter 4, does Paul gospelize the Romans? He gives them God's story. He gives them a narrative of God. Specifically in chapter 4, what he's doing is he is giving an exposition of the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. And Paul is basically making the point that God always intended, this was always God's plan A that he never abandoned. God always intended that the covenant family of Abraham would include Gentiles as well as Jews who believed in Jesus. That was always God's intention. And so in these four brief verses that give us God's story, Paul is addressing a very practical issue, who was in and who was out, connecting with our hearts, that we always want to be in that inner ring. We always want to be in that inner circle. We always want to belong. I say it's very practical because whether we recognize it or not or whether we just kind of push it down or suppress it or pretend it's not there. Belonging is an ultimate issue, a core issue of the human heart. Which of us doesn't get nervous when he walks in a room? What will other people think? You want to go to the ultimate time of nervousness among PCA pastors? Walk in general assembly. 2,000 insecure men going, whose church is bigger? What's going on? We don't say this. That, that's not good. Now I'm putting it out over live stream. Huh. Wonder how many emails I get this afternoon. I'll be vulnerable. I'm one of the 2,000. That's because we all want to be included. No one wants to be left out. So how does Paul go about addressing this core heart issue? And here we go. Another two-part sermon. He does it in two ways. I'm just trying to be faithful to the text. Two ways. He gives us gospel doctrine that leads to a gospel culture. Gospel doctrine that leads to the implication of that gospel doctrine. See, if doctrine doesn't lead to life, I'm going to tell you something. It's not good doctrine. If orthodoxy, see, I'm going to give you big words right now. If orthodoxy, as the theologians like to say, doesn't lead to orthopraxy, you love that? I practiced that before my mirror. If orthodoxy doesn't lead to orthopraxy, it is bad orthodoxy. Gospel doctrine must inevitably lead to gospel culture. Okay, in verses 1 through 8, there's a little bit of review here. It was established that righteousness, the righteousness of God, a right relationship with God that consisted in both being forgiven of your sins and given the legal status, the position, the reality of being counted, of being reckoned 
as right with God is by faith and not works. That was the polemic that was set up that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 8. We are told we are loved, we are forgiven, we are perfect in God's sight through the means of faith. And not by having our act together, not by self-discipline, not by even having the right beliefs or the quality of our life. Which brings us now to verses 9 through 12, our text for today. And verse 9 begins, and you can almost hear this question coming, if you have a church with Gentiles and Jewish people, you can almost hear the Jewish people, the Jewish believers saying, uh, Paul, I have a question for you. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? In other words, us, or is it also for them, for the uncircumcised? Here comes the issue of belonging, who's in, who's out. The wheels are turning. In other words, this beautiful gospel doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, is this only for the circumcised, meaning the Jewish people, or is it also for the uncircumcised? So the gospel doctrine issue then consists of these implications, and the issue is, the implication is, who are the children of Abraham? Who's in and who's out? Because what you've got here is two people groups representing two different cultures living together. Highly significant issue. See, what was circumcision? What did it represent? It was a cultural marker. It was a badge of identity. It was the chief identity marker of what it meant to be Jewish. It was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. It was the sign that you belong. See, I got the badge. I'm wearing the badge. I belong. I'm in. But now, look at this. It was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. When was the sign? Let's see. This is God's story. The sign was given back in Genesis chapter 17, which is after Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham's faith, his trust, his belief in the gospel was counted to him as righteousness. So in other words, it definitely was not necessary for salvation. The marker, the sign, was just that. It was a sign and a seal. It sealed the benefits of that covenant, covenantal relationship. It strengthened and renewed us. So the issue, very practical issue before the Romans, was do Gentiles coming into the church have to adopt Jewish culture, the Jewish way of life, in order to become fully acceptable, fully members with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities? See, think about it. It's very practical for us today. If a new person coming in, think about this. Do they have to be like us culturally? Do they have to be like us? Do they have to do things our way, whatever our way might be, our preferences? See, Paul's answer is a resounding and unequivocal no. There is one badge, one marker that is necessary for full membership all the rights and privileges of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ, that marker is faith. That badge, that's why, and I did hear somewhere, isn't this kind of the time of year, October, where we look at the Reformation and celebrate all of that? Isn't one of the five solas, sola fide, by faith alone? Not by faith and adopting a style of dress, a way of doing music, a way of... What's the carpet look like? 
Do you speak our way? Do you look like us? Do you act like us? Do you carry our views? The issue is by faith alone. Paul is presenting the issue of the beautiful community, diverse yet one, and he is saying to them, both Jewish believers who believe in Jesus Christ, have faith in Jesus Christ, and Gentile believers who have faith in Jesus Christ are on complete equal footing. That's the gospel doctrine. Now look at how he makes his case. Look at how he makes his case. He begins in verse 9. He asks the question, um, is circumcision necessary to be righteous? He answers in the second half of verse 9 saying, uh, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Moving along logically, he says in verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Um, was it before or after he had been circumcised? In other words, he's giving a chronological argument now. He's saying, uh, it wasn't after, but before he was circumcised. Belonged and accepted first, then received the sign. He then moves on to say, verse 11, well, what is the point of circumcision? Verse 11 says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal. Think about this. What does a seal do? You have a seal on an envelope. What does it do? It secures something so the contents of that envelope don't come out, right? It's a seal of the righteousness. This is so beautiful. I'm glad God's providence set it up this way. As we come to the Lord's Supper in a few moments, you want to know what this sacrament, this means of grace is meant to do? It is meant to, to seal the benefits. Jesus wants you to come and feed off of him to seal. He wants you not to just know that you're forgiven, but to feel it at a depth level. He wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants you just to not know cognitively that you're reckoned and counted as righteous. He wants you to feel that in the depth of your bones. It seals the righteousness that was there. And then the end of verse 11 and 12, why was all of this so? He's bringing the whole picture together. And he says what? The purpose, the end game, if you will, was to make him, Abraham, the father, listen to these words of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This gospel doctrine is that God has one story with one family to carry out God's redemptive mission God's one family is a multi-ethnic, multicultural family. As Paul put it in kind of a parallel book, in many ways the book of Galatians is parallel to the book of Romans. And as he put it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That is such a powerful, powerful verse there because what he's saying is that when he says counts for anything, he's saying neither that badge nor that badge carries any rele relevance before your standing in God. It's almost like God's saying, I really don't care about them. You know, think about what a means of grace means. A means of grace is there for us. 
It's to strengthen us. It doesn't do something for God. It is God, as usual, being God, doing what? Giving to us. We come with only need, and he does what? He strengthens us. He renews us. He feeds us. That's the gospel doctrine, which means what? What does a gospel culture look like? And I'll mention two things. The first thing that a gospel culture is, is a culture of faith. Did you catch in verse 12 where it says, and walk in the footsteps of faith that our forefather Abraham did? Remember a little bit, and I'm not going to tell the whole Abraham story, but the Abraham story, go back and read like from Genesis 12 on to at least Genesis 17 sometime. What a fascinating story. I mean, you know how it begins? Abraham, who was of what? Ur of the Chaldeans, okay, that's, that's kind of where he belonged. That was his heritage. That's where he was from. And then God appeared to him, and God says, what? Uh, Abraham, I want you to leave your people, leave your land, leave your comforts, leave what's familiar to you, leave your home, and go. And, of course, I could picture Abraham at this point. Um, Go where? Okay, I'm listening. Go where? Oh, I'll tell you when you get there. Okay. Will the GPS help? Nope. What am I supposed to do? Believe? Okay. Trust in the promise of God who does what did we learn last week? Who justifies the ungodly. Trust and believe. According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As Michael Byrd again says, he says, faith is a firm conviction that what we hope for will one day happen. Faith is confidence about a future that, so many, that to many observers looks futile. And a couple things we need to recognize about faith is that it's not the amount, it's not the strength, it's not the quality of our faith, it's the object of our faith, and the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. Tim Keller tells the story of basically illustrating this, of two men who were climbing two ladders to go up and maybe clean the gutters out of their roof or do something like that. And he says, these two men go up in two completely different ways. The first one goes up to the ladder, and he climbs up, and he's bold, quality of his faith in that ladder, amazing. He's just going up real fast. The other one looks at the ladder, and he's examined. Oh, boy, I'm a little timid. I'm not real sure. But he goes on the first rung. He goes on the second rung. And he's slow. And he has a weak faith. He says one has a strong faith, and one has a weak faith. But he says, that doesn't matter. The one who went up quickly up the ladder, the ladder was weak. And so what happened? He fell, and he fell down to the ground. The one who maybe was timid but went on a strong ladder, the ladder carried him, and he made it to the top. What matters is not how strong or weak your faith is, but how strong the ladder is. If your strong ladder is Jesus Christ, you can't get strong. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. What is your only comfort in life and in death? 
the footsteps of Abraham and his faith was his faith that was counted to him as righteousness. And one other practical lesson about faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a well-reasoned faith. It's a fa Again, if the object is God and the object is God in Jesus Christ, it is a rational, well-thought-out, reasoned faith. I'll tell you another quick story. I liken it this way. When I was a leader in Young Life, we went to a Young Life camp in Colorado Springs one summer. And one of the activities they had us do was to rappel down a mountain. Now, I'm a city guy. Okay, I was born in the city. I've lived in the city. I'm like, you want me to what? They said, rappel down this mountain. You're the leader of these youth. I went, uh-huh. How do I go about doing that? Well, they gave you this, they, you know, they gave you this line, hook it up to you and hook it up to whatever and stuff like that. Now, and then step off the mountain. Now, do you think I just blindly stepped off that mountain? What did I do? Oh, I examined every nook and cranny of that hook. Okay, where's that hook going? Is it, is it on my belt? Is it on there right? Correct? Pull. Do we have this? Now, where is it being hooked? It's being hooked on it. Okay, you got this? You letting go? Uh, you, you better not let go. You've never seen five foot three inches worth of, you know. I had no blind faith. So now I had this. So it's not a blind faith. It had to reason. But it's not an abstract faith either. Because what did I have to do to actually put my faith in that repelling line, we'll call it. I don't know the right term. But to put, I actually had to take this, hold on, and step off the mountain. It was not an abstract faith. Friends, it has to be the same thing. You have to step off the cliff. You have to trust yourself to Christ. And a gospel culture is doing that, living that way. Relating to God and others in that way will be a culture where we won't always have it together. We won't always have to prove ourselves. We won't always have to wear masks. Be people we're not. Pretend to be more together than we are. We can be an honest and vulnerable culture because we've stepped off the cliff and trusted ourselves to Christ who has us all the time. And second, the overflow of gospel culture from gospel doctrine will be a culture of belonging. I started this way, but everyone wants to belong and to be known. As one writer says again, he says, this is the issue of Romans 4, who is in and who's out. Who gets to put up the fences around the farm and who gets to decide who lives on it? Sadly, as another writer points out, by the name of Fleming Rutledge, she says, that sort of rivalry about who's worthy and who isn't has been wired into our DNA since Cain and Abel. But the Romans 4 story of Abraham, faith and justification, is about belonging. Paul employs the example of Abraham to demonstrate how God embraces us in his grace in Jesus Christ and establishes us as full and equal members of God's forgiven family. We bring nothing in our hands to make us worthy to be in that family, but we do not have to, for God has made us worthy by receiving his own son in whom we apprehend holiness, righteousness, and redemption. Friends, where do we find that belonging? Where do we find that inner circle? 
Where do we find that inner ring? We find it in the triune God, and we find it in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants his family to experience that belonging, to feel it. So he invites us to a meal. You realize as we go to the Lord's table now that in the ancient world, a meal was very significant because a meal together was a way of cementing fellowship, relationship, of sharing life, of experiencing intimacy. Let's go and partake of this meal now. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, Father, that now even as we come to the table, that we will eat and drink of you, Lord Jesus, that we will partake in you. We recognize that this is your table, and you have initiated and invited us. May we come. May we, in a sense, step off the cliff right now and receive and rest upon Christ and Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Who's in? Anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you to do that right now. Maybe you're sitting there and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ before. You're not here by accident. God has willed for you to be here. And maybe he's calling you to himself. Maybe he's saying, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of you giving up, trying to be good enough. Giving up, trying to be accepted and prove yourself. Today is the day, surrender and let me rescue you. It's all we have to do, step off the cliff. Do we understand everything? Of course not. I've followed Jesus for 40 years now. I think I understand maybe, eh, maybe that much. But step off the cliff and surrender to him. And my Christian friends, that's all we understand. We need to continue stepping off the cliff and surrendering to Christ and entrusting ourselves to Jesus Christ, resting in him, what he says about us. And he's invited us to this meal because at his table, he is saying, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're approved of, you're accepted. And so friends, let's partake in fellowship and commune with Jesus. Father, we do ask that you would knit us together that we would not just individually and as individualists look at Jesus, your body, but recognize as well that we are your body, so that this would be a family meal, that we would come together as your family, diverse and yet one. 
and be knit together. So bring us together. May we partake together and enjoy, Jesus, your meal together. We pray that you set apart these elements for their holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, on the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, Jesus also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but shall receive everlasting life. Lord, thank you for giving us this meal today as a sign of what you've done for us and a seal to secure to our hearts and our lives and our minds the benefits of what you've done for us. Thank you for strengthening us, renewing us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn this morning, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.